Welcome to Positions Podcast, a Cultural Studies Association-sponsored podcast published through our open-source journal, Lateral. Positions aims to provide critical reflection and examination on topics in cultural studies for scholars, students, and a general audience. Make sure to follow CSA and Lateral Journal on socials and subscribe to our podcast to keep up with new episodes. In our first episode, the New Media and Digital Culture CSA Working Group hosts For the Moment, I'm Not Scrolling, Claudia Skinner and myself, Andrew Culp, where we take a look into Drs. Addie Kuntzman and Esperanza Miyake's book, Paradoxes of Digital Disengagement, In Search of the Opt-Out Button, published by University of Westminster Press. Enjoy. So for today's episode, for the moment, I am not scrolling. Uh, we are joined by uh, Adi Kunzman. Uh, Adi, uh, good to have you here today. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm, I'm Adi Kunzman. I'm based in Manchester, UK, and I'm a leader in digital politics at the Department of History, Politics and Philosophy, and I research digital cultures, um, digital politics, including how people want to step away from the digital. Thank you. And we're also joined by Esperanza Miyake. Uh, Esperanza, uh, great to have you as well. Hi, Claudia. Thank you very much uh, for having me today. I'm Esperanza Miyake. I'm Chancellor's Fellow in Journalism, Media and Communication over at the University of Strathclyde, Scotland. And my research is mainly around um, questions of gender and race and the relationship between that and technology both as representations in popular culture and as kind of techno practices in everyday life. Today we plan to discuss how they developed the project, the current discourse on disengagement. And we will also talk about key cases and paradoxes from the book, such as the question of collective justice and where we are today. Um, well, I guess first thing that we wanted to find out a little bit about and hear more on is just a bit about the origin of your research project uh, on digital disengagement. What got each of you involved on this topic and, and then how did you come to work as collaborators? So I guess, yeah, your, your individual story and then, and then your, your story as a pair. I think I would probably just first of all say that us collaborating as a pair in some ways comes for well obviously we each individually have our work but we actually met 20 years ago more than 20 years ago <laughs> there is a sense of i don't know adi mentioned it but we were phd students it started from kind of in a seminar room we both had mohawks <laughs> a very sort of yeah looking back on those kind of punk, punky cyber punky days but um our very first project was actually on um Queerness and Race, um, it was a book, an edited collection called Out of Place, Interrogating Silences in Queerness and Race. So our collaboration actually goes back quite, quite far back. But in terms of this particular digital disengagement, uh, I think we probably arrived kind of separately and converged into a point about would you say about eight years ago when we started to notice um, things separately. So for me, the whole digital disengagement, the way I arrived to it is because I noticed as an academic and also having worked outside of academia, there was a lot about engagement and this obsession with kind of student engagement, public engagement, community engagement, and this word engagement 
was seen as something beneficial for the audience. But I always notice there's something transactional. It's never an innocent, let's engage with this community or engage with the students. It's we engage in order to find something out that's inevitably going to, I think, always critically harm uh, more than it will be a benefit to those. And the way that's often measured and the way I got disturbed by it was how digitality was such a part of that process of engagement. So, you know, social media engagement, all that kind of, but the way, even whether it's educational, public engagement, everything is digitalized in measuring that engagement. So that's for me, one way that I was really thinking about engagement. And also I think as a person of color, um, queer person of color, I think I've always throughout my life, this idea of engagement and disengagement, I've always felt disengaged from everything. And so for me, engagement has always been not as straightforward, I'm either engaged or not, it's a negotiated position. So those things for me have always come together. And I think, well, yeah, that's my, that's how I arrived to it. And obviously Adi and I, because we've been collaborating, we've often talked about things like this. So I don't know, Adi, I'll pass it over to you. How your journey to disengagement. Thanks, yeah, so, I mean, first of all, yeah, because we worked together for so long, we kind of get each other on so many levels. So whatever topic you go into, it's it, honestly, I mean, we started as PhD students 20 years ago. So we've kind of had a long journey through various theoretical and political terrain. But I think also when I remember kind of where this particular project started, um, I mean, I, I've been doing both of us really, but like I've been doing stuff on, on um, digital cultures and the way people use digital technologies, it was migrant communities, LGBT communities, people doing it for political violence. So, you know, I've done stuff on LGBT migrants online, on um, militant patriotism and right-wing nationalism and kind of in times of war online. So there was so much of it and you, and without ever asking questions of what's outside of the digital or does it have to be digital? And as the as the digi as digital cultures, digital communication progressed, and I remember it was shortly after I started um, my new job, my job at my, at my current university, there was digital innovation, digital transformation. So the language of the digital was absolutely everywhere, both in terms of technical and design and in terms of how people communicate, what institutions adopt. So I moved from looking at digital as being something new and looking at how this can open up certain doors and whether good doors or bad doors, it could be create a sense of community or tear people apart, but it was something new being introduced. And one day finding myself in a, in a situation, in, in a society, if you like, where it is everywhere, it is compulsory. And there's a kind of side anecdote, which I love retelling, I've just been reading a piece of science fiction, which isn't particularly interesting and, you know, could be kind of taken apart for, for many levels, but that piece was about and that was about seven, eight years ago. A lot of a lot of the things that I described there have now totally happened and became reality. But it was about this near future world with a range of technological innovations, which again today are pretty much happening, where basically digitality became compulsory really fast in a kind of very familiar marriage of uh, the corporate world and the political world and everything that's being kind of decided there. And then very quickly went from, wow, this cool new thing which some people may love, like we love social media and some people may not, like we don't like social media, but it very quickly became something compulsory without which first you couldn't find a job, 
then you couldn't get any money, then you couldn't do anything, and then you hunted down and died. And even though there is so much to be said about this, I mean, kind of one of the things that I was, I was talking to my students about how um, one of the strange things about that piece of science fiction was it was written by um, a white man, and it was like things that they were described there were long affecting many marginalized communities, but it's only when it kind of hits the center, it became an issue. But be it as it may, I do remember reading it, and I do remember actually like having a nightmare about our near coming future, which then became for me this quest to ask, okay, what if we want to question the digital? What if we want to opt out of the digital? How would that look like? Is that even possible? And it was scarily prophetic because since when we started working on it together, and then the pandemic came much later, things have escalated so much more compared to where we were, we were when we started. Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask more about that terminology and, and, and sort of what you think is maybe going on as to how we're understanding engagement and operationalizing engagement. And um, that might be a, a good segue into talking more about terminology uh, from there in your book. But yeah, I'd love to hear more about what you think is going on as to how we're approaching this idea of engagement. Um, thank you for that question, Claudia. Um, in terms of engagement and disengagement, it's an interesting point because there is a sort of growing area of what people now call disconnection studies. And the idea of digital disconnection um, I think it's it's kind of almost a well a field really and people thinking of disconnecting but we went specifically with disengagement rather than disconnection and perhaps it's because of two things one part of it is connect and disconnect has a very kind of um well, so does digital disengagement and engagement is very dualistic, but what we want to get through with engagement is it goes beyond that connectivity of digitality, but things to include social engagement, engagement with, you know, the economy, digital economy, engagement. You know, so there's various aspects of engagement, social, economic, cultural engagement. There's kind of different types of engagement as part of digital engagement so what does it mean to disengage so you can disengage from the connectivity of digitality but can you disengage from the sociality of it from the you know can you say so this is i think that's what we were trying to not maybe pull out but kind of be more flexible in the term of engagement or connection or disconnection i know it's kind of semantic in some ways but i think it's a very intentional way we chose engagement um, rather than connection to encapsulate and incorporate other forms of engagement which are also used in culture as i said earlier you know public engagement activities social media engagement is the kind of buzzword that's used but behind many a buzzwords there's kind of a more sinister process going on and i think that's for us something we want to critique through through the lens of digitality and the way we uh, i was going to say engage interact uh, use technologies maybe we can use this chance to map out a few of the other key terms that are really establishing the anchor points for debates around digital disconnection or disengagement 
as well as terms that help motivate your your book. And I'm thinking terms that are both coming from the field that are essential for scholars, but maybe some of the popular audience or popular culture terms. I know that people are talking about it, tech lash, for instance, but for you all, um, data justice seems like a very important term. It's something that I took from the book that that I loved reading about. Well, so one of the things that we noticed over the years as we're working on the topic is how the discussion about is there too much dig digitality? Is it digital becoming inescapable? Is it becoming compulsory? Can we do it in any other way? That this discussion is being sidelined or co-opted into, um, or oh, I just left my phone for a bit, or oh, I just disconnect. I I've just deleted my Facebook account. So there was something um, individualized and very kind of coming from a both privilege and also something casual and something that doesn't have any systemic questions at all. And I remember that we, as we presented our work in progress over the years, people were really excited and said, yes, I also decided to delete my Facebook account, or I also stopped using Twitter. And we kept saying, no, it's not actually about that. One of the things it is about, we believe, is about opt-out as a not just as a technical option, is there, even though our, the title of our book is, is there an opt-out button with a kind of tongue-in-cheek and a metaphor, but it's not just about, I mean, it is about in terms of design, is there techno-social layout for this possibility, but it's also thinking systemically when, how, who does the possibility to opt-out? So, and we always try to hold the two together, the design, software interface part, which is very important because if this possibility isn't there, then you can't, but also always reminding our readers and ourselves that even when it is there, it's not available to everyone. And one of the things that was really striking to us as we were working on this project is how temporary, whether short-term or longer-term disconnection is a luxury and becoming more and more of a commodity as opposed to a right. Interestingly, we were thinking about this before GDPR came into force. So because you're outside of Europe, maybe to kind of to, to remind the audience of general data protection regulation, which is a European law, which came into force in 2018. We've been working for a few years already. And, and we were really excited because in some sense, it was something that if somebody had asked us before, like, what kind of law would you like there to be? We would describe something like that. And, and GDPR talks about in the protection of individual data rights and how basically placing the responsibility onto corporations and institutions to inform anyone about which data is going to be collected, it's how it's going to be used to do an opt-in rather than an opt-out. So people need to explicitly agree for their data to be collected and held, not hold it for longer than necessary, deleting it after that. And, you know, five years, we're now coming to five years since it was introduced. It is very strong and it did make a difference. So on one hand, this is exactly what we were thinking about because we started with digital disengagement as a citizen right. But we also went further thinking about, yes, it is an individual right, but actually there are also questions of collective justice where individual rights are not enough. I don't think. Well, I suppose one thing I would add, just to add about the individual thing, I think another thing we, in our own journey that we started thinking more and more was the kind of individualization that that in itself, that discourse of making the individual right places the onus on the individual. Um, you know, you have to be the one to click the button. You have to be, you know, so whereas, you know, that's actually where we started, right? But we've moved in our own thinking 
that it shouldn't be that kind of self-responsibilization of ethics and you know of data one's control that it should be the default that that should be the starting point for everyone it's a collective thing so that's the only thing i would add about individuals also the individualization and self-responsibilization but actually there are also questions of collective justice where individual rights are not enough and they're not enough for two reasons one of them is that a lot of the monetization of data and profits, profit that is made of datafication isn't interested in individual bits of data. So the data economy is about collective patterns, the so-called big data. So just me isn't of any interest to any corporation or any of us in this, in this virtual room. It is the combination of all users of Facebook, all users of some other platform that actually provides value experience and because these incredible, amazing, uh, algorithmically driven systems know you best, wouldn't that be amazing? And the whole, I think, going with it, the whole discourse of personalization. So one of the ways, for example, in which um, data grabbing of various websites and apps is presented is that we're going to tailor the experience uniquely to you. And that's why we want your data. So there are kind of two things here. One is uh, whether somebody would want um, things to be uniquely tailored to them. And that's, you know, that's one question. But the other one is also when with messages like this, the assumption is that the representation is going to be true. That how digital systems see you is going to be true. And one of the things that we kind of informed by work of those others who are unpacking it, including Ruth Benjamin, is that the way digital data systems see us, like all of us, is deeply racialized, for example. And so in, in data economy that traffics in collective value, there is a limit to talk about individual rights. And what, we are, what we're both calling in our book is to think about collective justice and collective data justice in particular, um, which is a concept that we borrow from Lynette Taylor, where he talks about uh, data justice as the right not to be part of a database, the right not to be included, the right not to be counted. So that's one bit. But the other one, which is related, is how digital rights are not given in the same way to everyone. So, for example, even GDPR has its limitations, such as criminality or terrorism. So the moment it comes to criminal offenses slash police needs, or so-called anti-terrorist laws, all data rights are going out of the window. And well, we know that, for example, racialized communities are over-policed much more strongly than white communities or mi migrant or refugee communities. So this amazing system that is in place and seems to be wonderful actually is only offering protection to some. And again, this calls into question the whole individual idea of data rights, which looks beautiful on paper, because every time you agree to terms and conditions or you agree for your data to be processed, it does sound like something is changing and something moving on. But what we argue is that it is not enough and we must shift from individual focus to collective justice. Can I just add something as well about the previous thing about, sorry, just going back on the representation issue. I just was thinking whilst we're, everyone was talking about it. The pandemic actually flipped this a little bit in terms of how whether we want to be seen um, through the data in terms of the way, 
you know, contact tracing and collecting data was seen as a social responsibility. You share your data in order to contain the virus. If you've got COVID, you share it. And there was a sense of collective move, but also individual responsibility to share your own data. And I think that was one of, for me at least, certainly was fascinating during the pandemic where some of the things that we're talking about, like, oh, I don't want to be, you know, no slow surveillance. And that in itself is sometimes a privilege as well, you know, in the face of death and something like as drastic as the pandemic, that sort of thing kind of went out the window a little bit and we needed to, for clinical research, make our data visible. So I think I just wanted to add that because it was a bit of a, kind of flip and subversion in terms of how this idea of do we want to be counted? Do we want to be included in that big data analysis? I think this is for us that when we get back to the question of data justice, so when we're talking about collective rights, we're talking also about that. So when we talk about should we, can we opt out of those digital systems, we're also looking at opting out of the injustice that they inflict wrapped into the kind of promise of being seamless and efficient and great and amazing. Yeah, this reminds me of some deep changes that are happening here in California. You know, there's this old chestnut that, you know, I can tell you what your income or your salary or your wealth is just by knowing your zip code. And the way this is sort of going into digital systems are California is considering going away from a cash bail system to a purely quantitative system for all kinds of criminal justice and, and system affected people from parole to determining how much people will pay for bail. And then your social network, just the people who might be your contacts in your phone suddenly influence your uh, life opportunities. Or the Los Angeles Police Department considers you part of a gang just because of who you went to high school with. Um, so this makes me think of compulsory digitality, which is a very important term in your book about how it's not just that there's some people who choose to make this data available that, that's then scrubbed and used by these social institutions, but it's something that everyone feels sort of compelled to participate in. So Esperanza, um, do you think you could outline the terms of uh, compulsory digitality for us so the audience feels like they can um, understand it with more detail? So, well, I don't know if there's a kind of hard and fast definition for it, but I would say that compulsory digitality is, as it the, it would the term suggests, where increasingly we're moving in a world where everything is being digitalized in the name of efficiency. And if you think about environmentalism, it's paperless, it's digital, it's more personalized. You know, you can book your doctor's appointments without, you know, having to go through myriad of phone calls and things. And it's all kind of sold as easy. I think some of this Addie touched earlier on. Um, so this idea that digital by default, we're digitalizing all sorts of processes across the board from whether it's education, uh, border control, everything is digitalized. So increasingly we're forced to be in a world where we can't operate without digitality or some kind of going back to the idea of engagement and disengagement, engagement with the digital. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's because of platformization and the way things are synced, you can't engage 
one bit and disconnect from everything you know everything is connected platformized social media ties so you know even if you i don't know if you get rid of your social media account can you then log into other things for example you know like without because a lot of increasing a lot of accounts now force you to log into your social media account and things like that so if in terms of opt-out if you don't have access or for whatever reason you don't want to share data what are the options for you you know can you how do you get a job how do you you know so it's it's kind of that's one of the things that we're exploring in our book is that idea of opt-out like what if what if we don't go if you if you don't participate in this forced digitality what how else can you live and i think um a lot of it comes from this idea as well we we borrow from um, this idea of internet centricism and a logic where everything now operates through is Morozov's idea that everything is internet centric, everything goes to the internet. Uh, we were thinking about internet centricism, and the other one is, is uh, Morozov's idea of uh, he's saying technological solutionism. So we kind of borrowed that and thinking of it in terms of digital solutionism that everything, if there's a problem, supposed problem, we throw digitality at it, including things like if there's too much digital stuff, let's throw an app to help you manage the digital. And that kind of, it's kind of, everything is digitalized. And I think that's what we mean by compulsory digitality. And then in terms of the paradox, it is too, digital detox, there's a lot of hidden labor and privilege in it, as well as the way in which it's um, put in ecological metaphors and so there's a sort of greenwashing that goes in and it only allows sort of partial opt-outs and there's some people who can really benefit from it and it's often put in the sort of like um healthiness sort of framework thank you i think you know you summarize it really well that basically the first part of the book talks about various examples of where the space of opt-out is shrinking and again we started writing about it before the pandemic and came to the fore way more during the pandemic, so education, citizenship, and health, which, you know, I won't necessarily elaborate on, but these are areas where we may like it or we may not like it, but we can't, there is very little and increasingly less and less a way of opting out of it. So, you know, citizenship and welfare services in particular, or visa applications, or policing where you would have loved to, but you absolutely can't. And they very much tied to privilege where if you're not a welfare recipient, if you're not a refugee, then you have more room to opt out. So we kind of see a general broader process of shrinking of spaces of opt out. And then we moved on to looking at, okay, so when this does happen, because as we were working on our topic and then writing the book, the conversation about too much digital and digital detox and this connection was also growing bigger and bigger. So we kind of, this is, I think, at the heart of the paradox. So these two things, the shrinking of opt-out and the growing grumbling about the digital have developed hand in hand. So we then turn into, okay, when it does happen, how does it look? And maybe I'll use example of environment as one that's particularly interesting because um, one of the reasons we thought it would be important to digitally disengage or important to reduce the amount of the digital is the increasing environmental harm inflicted by the digital. And this is something that's very rarely discussed because we still think of the digital as something immaterial. You know, when we say the, we save something on the cloud, we still kind of assume it's on the cloud, but it's not on the cloud, it's in, in the data server. So, and once you step out of communication studies, the wealth of evidence is tremendous. And actually there is a growing body of work within communication studies, but nevertheless, it hasn't 
has not yet made it into the mainstream of how we think about digital communication. We just think about what we say, how we say it. Fake news, hate speech. So it kind of about what we do and the meanings and representations, but not about the materiality of it. So one of the hopes of having less digital or opting out or reducing would be environmental harms. And motivated by that particular hope, uh, we looked at what happens when digital, when stepping out of the digital is presented in environmental terms? Like, is the, is it this revolutionary transgression, transgressionary process of saying there is horrific amount of e-waste, there is extractive economies of mining, there is growing carbon footprint. We should use less for those reasons. And as we turn to it, actually we discovered something else. So one of the things that we looked at is how digital detoxes, for example, if you look at them, kind of how they're represented, this is called a collection of representation, both visually and in terms of words and symbols, they're very much represented as something that's about nature and also green. So I, I for example, did a very quick Google search of images. What if you look for digital detox? You literally get a green screen of Lots of images, some of them are green icons, some of them are pictures of nature. So there is a kind of symbolic conflation of digital detox slash stepping out of the digital with nature, which then symbolically leads to this dichotomy of horrible technology and beautiful nature. But unpacking that, what we found is that this kind of stepping away from the digital was very much presented as a privilege and as it wasn't it wasn't narrated as a privilege it was a privileged thing to do such as go to a digital detox that cost hundreds and hundreds pounds somewhere else and then tapping into the kind of extractive economy of global tourism very much with colonial images of going somewhere in the wilderness where you can leave your phone behind and interestingly very little if anything at all about precisely about the questions of global digital justice, right? So we, global environmental justice. So we talked about collective data justice. We also need to talk about collective environmental justice. So there was very little of that. And because of that, we also turned to looking for initiatives which do explicitly try to minimize environmental harm. And one of them, which actually is really beautiful, is the example of a fair phone, and that's trying to resist and confront the disposability of our digital culture. So again, we're, we're not just talking about representations and meanings and words, but the actual devices that allow us to do this communication, they are part of a built-in obsolescence. They're part of, of a digital economy that, that has so much waste and we change more. Like I ask my students, how often do they change their phone? And they usually say between a few months and two years at most. So kind of, as well as the, the digital economy itself, where, for example, even if you wanted to hold into your phone for longer, you can't for a number of reasons. And as the simplest one of them, and the one that probably would speak to um, your listeners is that in most phones today, you can't replace the battery. So one of the first thing that goes is the battery and wouldn't that be so easy and earlier phones, especially non iPhones, Android phones, were allowing that, including fancy Samsung phones where you can open, open the lid buy a new battery and give it several more years it is now impossible so apple ha had it for a long for longer other phones follow suit so that makes them basically a very expensive piece of e-trash that becomes trash very quickly so the initiative that we were writing about is fair phone which is a, a european but i think a dutch a small 
kind of social justice startup, which follows the principles of fair trade of both that the phone itself as a material object can live longer because every component of it can be replaced. So there are different things in goal. A screen can be cracked, memory can be insufficient, battery can lose its charge. You can replace each of them, but the kind of the core, of the, and only one that's needed as opposed to the whole thing, and the core of the phone will stay for as long as. So that's a really, really important mission, but also, again, following the principles of fair trade, and um, they as a company also paying attention to how workers on the digital assembly line are treated and then the process itself is fair because normally it absolutely isn't. Um, so we're writing about that with a lot of admiration and respect, but also wondering what are the limits of this kind of challenge. A, because a phone like that is quite expensive, nowhere near as expensive as an iPhone. But unless we're talking to people, all of whom have iPhones, a lot of people can't afford something like close to $1,000 or over. And the debate between $500 or maybe $100 for a second-hand phone is a really real one. So it depends. When I talk to, to, to my students, I kind of get cohorts where everyone has an iPhone. And then they say, well, $500 is, is nothing. But I kind of invite all of us to step out of that world where $500 is, will she do for a very long time. So the question of when it's still expensive, how, who is it open to? But also in the spirit of our broader thinking about reducing, limiting, opting out of, having a phone keeps us in the loop of digitality and digital connection. So it kind of leads us to the question of, is this solution supporting and enabling and continuing the culture of um, compulsory connectivity, as the Bandai uh, put it, rather than having a, a bigger potential. So I would say this is probably one of the biggest insights. We also had several several other examples um, within the book of kind of various ways of thinking about digitality being more sustainable. And I would say this to me leads to a really big debate of do we give up or do we amend? And I think this kind of dilemma is not unique to the question of the digital. Do we make things a little bit better and a little bit more bearable? Kind of evolution versus revolution. Or do we just find ways to dismantle it completely? And I think some of the answers are kind of a matter of um, judgment and value. Some of them are about, is it what you aspire to versus what's real? So I'm trying always to, to hold on to both. So in some of our arguments, we aspire to actually reducing, refusing, recycling the digital, but also it's really important to think about those initiatives which allow in the meantime to make digital as we have it more environmentally just. I, I, I wanted to ask in, in terms of these um, strategies of collective justice, how important you think the, the labor movement uh, is to these uh, efforts? Uh, to to change the system. Uh, you uh, all have brought up uh, gig labor that I thought was so important uh, in your work um, and I and, and the solidarities that can form uh, to to create change. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I wanted to maybe ask uh, Esperanza uh, for, for you to start us off in, in terms of talking about, yeah, this role of the labor movement in our collective justice uh, prospects for the future. So I think 
one thing in term when you say labor movement you mean the platform gig labor that kind of that side of things i think it's a difficult one to answer this one because in some ways it goes back to the very question of labor uh, sorry of um privilege and who has the resources to opt out and in terms of gig workers and platform workers you know we talk about oh digital disengagement and digital detox i mean really you know is an uber driver going to go on a digital detox holiday uh, because they've got too much digitality in lives um and i think so in terms of collective justice whilst they are movements and there's ways that um i'm sure there's studies of um uber, i think it's uber drivers um who kind of collectively kind of changed the algorithms and coordinated so there are kind of pockets of activities like that um but i think one thing we need to move away from is not to see it as let's move away from the digital because that's actually one of the ways our work has actually been misinterpreted often so the number of times that we've actually presented at conferences and things i think lots of people interpret it as we're saying let's get a rid of the digital and let's collective justice can collect individual rights everything all comes from kind of reducing the digital in some ways that is the case but that's not what we're saying we're saying using the d digital tools to rather than it then be weaponized against us to collectively kind of use them in ways that are eth more ethical and come from within i think it gives us so much to think about i mean there is and i would maybe take it a bit beyond the question of the labor movement, also because the, the kind of labor party labor movements are very different in different countries. I mean, I I, you know, I can comment on um, you know the labor party and the labor movement in the UK or I don't know in the Soviet Union, right? But not necessarily maybe in the US. But I, I it, it is important to think about questions of digital labor, but also kind of remembering that people who are involved in the gig economy very often have extremely limited resources get organized and it's an increase extremely individual brutal individualized work but i think if we're thinking of what else and kind of what what else can be done or what kind of other forms of collective organizing are there i would say first and foremost it's important that we think about these forms of collective organizing together with people who are on the receiving end and affected so one thing it's important for it not to be is an academic exercise. And there are a number of really beautiful projects to do that. Um, I think one of them is actually US-based US and is called Our Digital Bodies, Our Data Bodies, so Our Data Bodies, um, which is something that inspired that greatly. And that uh, leads me to the idea of digital self-defense um, that you mentioned. So this is something that they use and that we also uh, write in our book. So the idea that we're thinking about how can groups and communities that are most affected by the violence of the digital or the inability to opt out or the inability to escape digital harms, what do they do in response? And in some cases, it might be stepping out of the digital. In many cases, this is not possible, as we show throughout the book. And therefore, other forms of resistance, such as self-defense, are needed. And this could include being aware of how algorithmically driven automated decision-making systems are working to be able to survive them and resist them where possible. 
actually acquiring digital literacy, not because everyone should be digitally engaged and, and kind of um, included, but because these tools are absolutely necessary. And we're kind of thinking about self-defense as opposed to cybersecurity and how different they are, even though both frameworks think about living safely in the digital world, if you kind of think about it this way. But cybersecurity, first of all, is a top-down, and secondly, it's a militarized paradigm with everything that comes with it, as opposed to self-defense, which is bottom-up and community-driven, and therefore these opportunities will look differently in different communities and will be will be crafted differently, will be negotiated differently. Some of them can include, we've got a beautiful group in Manchester called uh, Manchester Open Data, where they actually work with how data can serve communities. So it's different to what we're arguing. So rather than saying no, no data, no, no more digital, let's all go away, is saying data is everywhere. It's used by the government. It's used by every business. How can we empower communities? So the decisions that are made are made with them in mind. But what also is really important to us is that this discussion is never driven by digital is amazing and digital is inevitable and digital must be there. They're driven by if it's there, how do we live with it? But also constantly asking, do we need this digital option? Maybe something else would be better. And I think it's really important for us to mention that this is this is often how our work is misunderstood as that we're calling people to live in the woods um, and kind of get off the grid, which A, we're not, and B, in itself is a huge luxury. So we're not calling to, to, to live off, off, off the grid in the, in the woods. We are calling to ask whenever we approach any new, newly introduced, newly developed, newly launched form of digitality is to ask, do we need it? Who is it going to harm? How are they going to defend themselves? What are kind of tools that we need to develop? And maybe if we don't need it, we shouldn't adopt it. So I'll ask them there. Couldn't ask for a better uh, call to action, community-driven, uh, uh, affected community-focused uh, approach to the digital. So wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Adi and Esperanza, for joining us today. This has been um, just such a fantastic conversation, so illuminating for all of us here, and I'm sure for our listeners, listeners to today. Let me just say thank you for having us today. We really enjoyed the discussion. Indeed, thanks very much. And your questions were absolutely wonderful and thought-provoking. And we'd also like to thank the Positions production team, including... Mark, Elaine, uh, Jeff, Heath, all, all the people out there. You can join us uh, for the next episode of Positions, hosted by the Performance Studies Working Group, the episode Let's Relax, uh, which will discuss the concept and practice of relaxed performance, uh, one of the accessibility services for neurodivergent audience members in theatre.